Good morning, River Tree. So glad you're here this morning. Welcome to those at the main campus worshiping with us today, too. Um, excited about what we're going to read in God's Word today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be making our way through this section of Scripture, the next section as we make our way through this gospel. And we've been uh, working through this gospel over the last few months. But uh, last Sunday and this Sunday are kind of critical places within Mark's gospel that uh, things are uh, becoming more clear. There's a, a, a turn happening in the gospel moving forward from what we've seen happening so far uh, to what's going to happen next. So if you have your Bible, turn there. Uh, as you get there, let me uh, remind you just of a couple things. One, uh, we have uh, people on our prayer team uh, at both campuses today uh, that are available to pray with people at the end of, the, end of our services. Both men and women will be kind of gathered to the left and my right of the stage at both campuses uh, and would love to be an encouragement with you uh, and for you. So if, if God begins to just do something in your heart through the course of the day or if you came in just heavy hearted of things that you're already dealing with, just know that there are people here that would love to be a friend, uh, love to create, uh, start a relationship with you, and, and love for you to leave encouraged, that you're, you're not alone, and to have somebody just pray for you or pray over you before you go may be the very thing that you need today. Uh, also, let me tell you a bit of what happened last Sunday night at our very first interest meeting for the downtown campus as we began to talk about uh, timelines and launch teams and just what that looks like moving forward over the next few months as we get to uh, across the first of the year. Uh, where that campus will, will reopen. And so we had uh, about 140 people in attendance. And it was really a great time of just questions and answers and hearing more about what's coming. And so another one of those meetings will be happening here in another couple weeks in August. And so if you weren't able to come to this meeting we had last Sunday night, uh, be watching for the next interest meeting. Uh, be, be listening for the next update. We would love for you to come, whether you're part of and praying about being a part of the downtown campus, or you already know God is going to be uh, keeping you here in the cove, uh, we want to tell you what's next for you uh, at both campuses and get us excited, uh, praying, uh, looking forward to the really amazing thing that God's going to be doing. Last week, as we looked at Mark chapter 8, we highlighted Peter's confession. It was that moment where Jesus took the disciples and kind of led them away, led them away from the crowds, and he asked them, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples began to talk about, well, some think that you're a prophet, some think that you're Elijah. There's, there's lots of ideas. We definitely, the, the, the people around definitely think that you're divine, uh, that you're powerful, that, that you speak the word of God. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And as, as Peter said that, he was making one of the most significant declarations that you could make. And one since he was saying for, to Jesus, you are God among us. You represent God. You are the last and final king. And we believe that you are here to establish your kingdom and to gather God's people together. And so what Peter was saying was profound. And, uh, and as he confessed Christ being the Messiah, there was this kind of uh, amazing moment of just revelation and insight into just who Jesus is that we hadn't had that up to this point in the gospel. There'd been lots of questions about Jesus' identity, about who he was and what he was there to do. But as Peter says that, it's this moment in Mark's gospel where it's just laid before us. It's the centerpiece of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so I want to look at this next section of scripture because it's almost a part one and part two of Peter's confession and then what happens immediately after that in verse 31. 
It says this, that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have a mind You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So I want you to see here how Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Moments, seconds later, He's being rebuked by Jesus. And, and I, I, I appreciate that. Like uh, there's, there's part of me that uh, quickly connects with this moment of clarity that Peter has as he confesses who Jesus is. He speaks to the, the exact identity of Jesus, but then immediately later, that clarity turns into confusion. Uh, what, what Peter understands in this moment seems to move on to something else that he doesn't quite understand that there's still a lot more for him to learn. And up to this point, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been identified by power, by authority. This is the first time that we see Jesus beginning to express something about suffering. Peter, he was he's one of the first disciples. Uh, he, he was quickly into this group of disciples. And as the disciples are recognized throughout the New Testament in the Gospels, Peter is always the first one of the list of 12. In other words, Peter was the leader of the disciples. And so when Peter confesses Christ, when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, he is speaking for the disciples. But in turn, when Jesus pulls him aside and rebukes him, it's not just Peter that's being rebuked in this moment. It's, it's the disciples themselves. It's even us. It's the struggle that they're having with what Jesus is saying. Not about what Jesus is, who he is. They're clear now on who Jesus is. What they're unclear, what there is an uncertainty about is what Jesus has come to do. Peter says, you are the Christ. It's a declaration that Jesus is the last and final king come to put the world right. Then Jesus totally revises the idea of what it means to put the world right. And as Jesus begins to talk about that there will be suffering, that there will be death, that he will rise again, Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes like, hey, um, you're, you're talking a little crazy here. And Jesus pretty much tells him to shut up. Like there's this, this really kind of moment here, this tension between them. And so I, I, wanna, I want us to understand, what is Peter's greatest kind of confusion here? What, what is Peter lobbying for? What is Peter angling for? And what is Jesus trying to help not only Peter and the disciples understand, but what is he trying to help us understand? This, this section of scripture 
of Peter's confession of who Jesus is as the Christ and what Jesus then begins to say about what he will experience and what our lives too will experience if we truly follow him, this section of scripture is, is central to the gospel. It's one of those that just, if you can understand what Jesus is saying here, you're going to have a greater understanding, greater insight into the Christian faith. Peter is conveying this deep felt tension that we have between power and weakness, between sovereignty and suffering. In other words, Jesus, Peter is saying this, why would an all-powerful Messiah subject himself to suffering? Why would he do that? In other words, Jesus, if, if, if you're the Messiah, right, if Peter could just pull Jesus away and say, if you're the Messiah, you know, kind of, you know, get a hold of yourself right now. You're, you're, you're talking crazy. If what you're doing doesn't make a lot of sense. In other words, Jesus, if, if I were the Messiah, let me tell you how this would work out. Let me tell you what I would do if I had all the power, all the ability, if I was truly God among us, it, I wouldn't be talking about suffering. I, I wouldn't be talking about dying. If I were, right, I'd have a different plan. I think one of the things that we often um, kind of be drawn into is this idea of, well, what if I was in charge? What if I could call the shots? What if, what if I was like God? And this moment for Peter and this strong rebuke from Jesus, you could say like, why did Jesus call him in this moment Satan? And there's, you could go all the way back to the very first temptation that our very first parents, Adam and Eve, faced in the garden. When their temptation in the garden was this desire and temptation to be like God. The serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Eugene Peterson says that when the serpent made this temptation, when he, when he offered Adam and Eve this idea or opportunity to be like God, they weren't thinking of anything that came with limitations. They were only thinking about the, how they could know everything, how they could have an edge on the rest of creation, how they could indulge all of their desires. They weren't thinking of anything that would be restrictive they weren't thinking of anything with limitations. They sure weren't thinking about suffering and sacrifice and dying. And I would say this, that more times than we're even probably aware of, the, the things that Jesus say are challenging to us. They, they should stretch us. Jesus is revealing God to us. But yet we have our own ideas about what God should do, what God would be like, what it would be like to be God to have our own advantages, to find some way to, you know, gain greater control over our lives, to gain greater control over other people. We're often kind of thinking through what would it be like to have more knowledge, to have more power, to have more strength, the things that we would do if we were just like God. And so Peter comes to Jesus and says, listen, if I were in charge, listen, it would sound a lot different than what you're saying. We, we wouldn't be talking about shame we wouldn't be talking about humiliation. We wouldn't be talking about sacrifice and suffering. We would be establishing the kingdom of God through power and majesty and might. That's what you're here to do, Jesus. That's what I would do. 
I'm not talking about plans where messiahs get killed. And this is that moment where Jesus pulls them aside and says, Peter, you don't understand what you're talking about. The things that you're thinking about are deeply entrenched in man's ideas, in worldly philosophy, in worldly priority. This idea of avoiding suffering, avoiding sacrifice. Not only was it the first temptation within the garden, but it was the first temptation that Jesus himself experienced in the wilderness. As he was led by Satan into the wilderness, it was this moment where Jesus is hungry and hasn't eaten for days. And the serpent, Satan, comes to him and says, why are you hungry? You can fix this. You've got the power to turn these stones into bread. Why wouldn't you do that? Why are you choosing the route to suffer? Why are you choosing this route to sacrifice? You want everybody to worship you? Just throw yourself off the temple. The angels will pick you up. Everybody will see you for who you are. It's glorious, powerful, divine. Why are you willing to take this role, this path of servanthood, of suffering? Peter echoes this very same approach and this very same sentiment. And I would offer you this. It's not just Peter. It's all of us. It's our bent. It's our bent towards a life that is self-oriented, towards a life that is self-determined. Paul says that in his own message, in his own writing of the church, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. This idea of a Messiah, God among us, in power and authority, also now, Jesus saying, will suffer and die. It's just out of sync with the way that we would reason, with the way that the world works. Who would ever design a method for saving the world through suffering, sacrifice, and death? Why would that happen? No one. It's why Israel misinterpreted Isaiah 53 for generations. This passage about the suffering servant, this passage about the Messiah who would come and bear our sins, bear our iniquities, bear our wounds. It, it, it didn't make sense to Peter, and rarely does it make sense for us that God would choose to come this way. Jesus seemed to be saying, I'm about to lose, and I want to invite all of you to lose with me. Never before this moment had Israel connected these dots that when the Messiah came, he would also suffer, that he would sacrifice. But Jesus is saying something, that the way that this moves forward, the way salvation comes, the way the world is put right, it will not come by a sword, but it will come by the cross. And after he rebukes Peter, and pretty much he calls him Satan, that this is, you're a trap to me, Peter. Like what you're suggesting is, is not the way. Then he gathers the crowd and says, if you really want to be my disciple, verse 34, he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus makes that comment. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. This word life is the Greek word psyche. It, it means 
your identity or your selfhood. And so I want you to see, when Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Jesus is not calling all of us to physically die or even lose your individuality. But what he's saying is the way that you build your sense of self, the way that you understand your value in gaining things in this world, that has to die. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So the question Jesus is offering us, what he's beginning to open up to the disciples, to Peter, to the crowd, to you and I, is how do you understand, how do you develop this sense of self? In other words, where do you derive value? Your sense of self, what holds you together? Every culture has certain measures in which they say, if you have this, acquire this, achieve this, then you are somebody. You are a self. In, in traditional cultures, um, kind of cultures that were our high honor cultures, it's very much about the family. It's, it's about, uh, it's about the, the, the reputation of your family. It's about the legacy of your children. In individualistic cultures, then the way that you find your own value or your sense of self is by what you acquire, by what you've achieved, your reputation or status within that culture, what we possess. And Jesus says that the prevailing idea of this thought about what, of what you've built, what you have, that what you've accomplished helps you become something, your identity and your selfhood will be as temporary as the things that you are acquiring. Your identity and selfhood will be as temporary as the things that you are achieving and amassing. And Jesus is offering us this, an entirely new way to be a self, to have value, to have an identity, that your identity and selfhood could be connected to who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, and the gospel, this redemptive work that God is doing in the world. Then your soul will have what it was designed for. You will not have lost it along the way. But the truest part of you, your identity, your personhood, could be established by what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us in this moment to lose our lives in this way. He's inviting us to lose our old self, the old way in which we saw ourselves, the old way in which we had our own identity, and to base your life now on the gospel. Jesus is going to go to the cross. And in a way, Jesus is going to lose his identity on the cross so that you might have an identity in him, that you might be found in him, that you might be secured in him and have this new sense of how you see yourself, how you value yourself, how you understand who you are. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that our real selves are waiting to be found in him. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. He goes on to say this, the more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, upbringing, surroundings, and natural desires. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personhood, his personality, then I finally have a real personality all my own. He's saying apart from Jesus, You'll never be who you were meant to be. Apart from Jesus, you will lose your soul, your sense of 
the truest part of you, this sense of self, this value of who you were meant to be, your design. Apart from Jesus, you will attach those things to your temporary, to only things that you're acquiring, to only things that you're achieving. But if you attach your sense of self, if you die to this old life and live, you'll actually find yourself in Christ. If you die and give up your life, you'll actually find it in Him. Something more powerful, something more permanent. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not talking about when we endure uncomfortable things in our lives. Sometimes we'll talk about our cross is those burdens or difficulties that we manage. And some words like, you know, you're, you're walking through an illness or you're walking through a big uh, a financial struggle and you're kind of, you're bearing out your cross. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying this, that to take up your cross is to do this. It, it's to come behind Jesus and to say goodbye to the old self, to the old way of living, to the old ways in which you thought about yourself, to, that you derive value and worth. It's a, it's, a, it's a complete shift to something new. In other words, it's dying to self-determination. It's dying to this desire to have control over your life. It's, it's dying to having God work out your agendas. It's dying to all those old things and following Christ, living for him as Jesus submitted himself to the Father, saying, it's not my will, but yours be done. It's this movement of ours where we no longer are looking just to accomplish our own wills for our own achievement, for our own status, for our own kind of securing our, our identity. It's something different. It's now attaching yourself to Christ and his work. Jesus will die on the cross at the end of his life, but for every disciple, we die at the beginning. Jesus will die on the cross at the end of his life, but for every follower of Christ, every Christian, every disciple, we die on the front end. This is what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life up for me. Paul understood this, that the moment of belief, this moment of conversion, this moment where you and I confess, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. There is a revolution that happens. A radical transformation begins where we die in that moment to the old way of establishing ourself, our value, our worth, our identity, and we shift into this new way of what Jesus is providing through his life and through his sacrifice, radically different. Identifying with Jesus happens at the beginning as you die to all those things that you used to value, success and achieve worth, the ways you used to think about yourself, to follow Christ, it's, it is a clear giving up and abandoning of certain dreams and agendas and wishes. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a book called The Cost of Discipleship tells us. He says, the old man dies when we encounter Christ. He goes on to say this, thus it begins the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our commitment to Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Years ago, we were covering a passage just like this. Um, 
and, and a friend in the church came up and said, Ross, let me tell you a thought, something that I, I've heard. And he goes, there's really only one significant major decision the Christian makes. And it's that moment of surrender. It's that moment of belief in who Jesus is as the Lord of your life. And every decision a Christian makes after that are, are, are all just implications of the first one. They're all just products of the very first one. Every decision that you make after that, of dying to self, of giving up your life, of following Christ, of taking up your cross, of denying the old self and the old way and siding up with Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of them when I come into glory. This idea of shame, it means this. It's a distancing of yourself. When you are ashamed of someone, you distance yourself from them. Versus if you're proud of them, you come along alongside them. And what Jesus is saying this, if you're not ashamed of me, if you're proud of me, then, then you'll identify with me and you'll stand with me. Jesus is saying this, that the way of living, the way of sacrifice, the suffering servant is something that if you embrace now, when Jesus comes in glory, not only will your truest self be revealed, but you will be with Jesus. Not only will your souls be saved, but you will be with Jesus in that moment, revealed as he is glorified. If what we're hoping for, right, to be a, a true self, to, be, to find our worth, our, our value, our identity, if, if it doesn't come through what Jesus is showing us in this moment, then all we can hope for is just more of the same. More things that break, more pain, more relationships estranged, more hopes that fail. If it's not what Jesus is saying, can we look around the world and say, if it's not that, then it's just more of the same. It's more of our future or our security and our hopes being attached to the fluctuating inconsistencies of whatever leader is in, is, is in influence at the time. If it's not what Jesus is saying, and Peter doesn't understand the very things that he longs for, the very things that he needs, what he needs for his soul is going to be accomplished through sacrifice, through what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Peter thinks salvation is just overthrowing Rome. And maybe you too, maybe you think salvation is just, you know, like it's just escaping hell. I need more than just to miss hell. I need, I need heaven to take over my heart. I need some transformation to happen inside of me. That salvation is God doing this work on my behalf, a new work of a, that will be a new start that can be formed in my life. I don't, need, I don't need Jesus to go to Jerusalem to take on Rome. I need Jesus to come to my own heart and to take on me. I need something to happen here a new way of living, a new way of understanding who I am, a new way of deriving value, a new way of attaching myself to something far more permanent, more, more eternal, more secure. Jesus said this, he said that if a seed doesn't fall to the ground and die, then it remains alone. But if a seed falls to the ground and dies and is buried, it produces a harvest. He's talking about salvation. And yet Jesus is talking about this very kind of the world around us, how creation works, 
Jesus is talking about this beautiful aspect is showing us of what he's not just going to do for our sins, but how he's going to actually make us new. Not just forgiven, but remade with a new start. As he goes into the ground, there's going to be a harvest that comes, a change that comes to your life and my life by his work. He's going to restore things by his sacrifice, by the way he's going to give himself. And as he And as he truly loves us by dying on the cross, he sets us free to also truly love, to walk through this life differently, not with this old man, old way, old values, old sense of self, but something brand new, something more hopeful, something more permanent. This is is what Jesus is declaring to Peter when Peter says, I would never have you suffer I would never have you go to the cross. And she's saying, you're missing it because if I don't, you'll never have any of this. You'll never have any of the things that your soul truly needs, what you were truly designed for, what will truly make you new and different. Let me close with a few more words by C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose life and you will save it. Submit to the death of your ambitions and wishes, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing in you that hasn't really died will be raised. Look out for yourselves, and in the end, you'll find loneliness, hatred, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else so will be thrown in. Let's pray. Father, I know that I'm challenged by what Jesus is offering here. A route that he's taking and a route that he's inviting us into that seems very different than what I would choose. To sacrifice, to serve, even to die. And yet we understand in the end what his death will accomplish, how it will open up a way to live differently, forgiven and free, empowered and new in ways that we could never experience if we don't come to that place in our life where we find ourselves crucified with Christ, where we die with him die to the old ways, die to the old self. God, I pray for each of us this morning that what Jesus invites us into is a miracle, a work that he can only accomplish in our hearts, but yet our hearts need it desperately. God, I pray for us that if there are people in the room today that have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day, knowing full well what he's offering not just to be forgiven, but to be made new, to live differently, to be connected to him, to have something eternal happening inside of us that moves us forward, that secures us, that gives us new hope and new joy that we've never experienced before. Father, I confess that this decision makes everything different. I thank you that that happened in my own life years ago 
and how Jesus, your way of sacrifice and your service to us has never disappointed. God, help us to also walk out this way, this way that seems counterintuitive, that we would sacrifice, that we would serve, that we would give of ourselves. And in those moments, those would be the ingredients for new life, something new, something special, something transformational. God, move us to greater places where our lives look like Christ's. We pray this in his name.